Well, please remain standing and let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, even as we've heard your word read, I pray this morning that your word would penetrate our hearts and souls and affect our wills. I pray that Christ would be seen and heard and loved and followed, and that your spirit would work manifestly in power amongst us. We thank you indeed that your will is done, will be done to the end, that you are in full control of all things, including the salvation of sinners, including the many providences that you orchestrate in this world around. We think of governments and even pray for those who are in power. We think of elections upcoming and, and pray that those who will rule will rule righteously and even be brought to submit to your will in Christ. We thank you for the many blessings that we have in knowing the Lord Jesus as our Savior in this church family. We thank you for the, the new people that you've brought to us and, and for our growing number, but also our growing love uh, for you and for one another. I do pray for all of the members of our congregation and those who are here today that you would minister to everyone's needs according to your wisdom, whether those who are, are suffering physically or, or financially, those who have decisions to make about the future, the many cares that we do have. I pray that we would be brought to see all of these things in light of a sovereign and, and loving God. We do pray for the preaching of the Word that is going out in Cochrane through Pastor Josh and, and even Pastor Clint as he has this unique uh, evangelistic opportunity in Rimby uh, with the rodeo community. pray that you would give him great uh, unction as he speaks, that people will be saved by the only Savior, Jesus Christ. And bring us comfort this morning. Arrest us in our slovenliness, in our laziness, even in our sinfulness, and draw us to Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in recent months and days, uh, you'll be aware we've heard uh, and seen the death of some significant Christian leaders. I'll name a few. There's George Verwer, Many of you may recognize his uh, name from Operation Mobilization, great evangelistic work. The great Scottish preacher, Eric Alexander, died in the last few months. Irish preacher, Edward Donnelly. Harry Reader, U.S. preacher in, a, in an accident. Tim Keller, very well-known U.S. pastor, died of cancer. And uh, just a few days ago, Donald MacLeod, a wonderful Scottish theologian and preacher, died in his 80s. And of course, famously by the world's standards, the iconic pop star, Tina Turner, died this past week. Moreover, I know that some of you, many of you have experienced bereavement in recent times, 
or in longer times in the past in your own families, the loss of loved ones. As I was pondering this reminder of the end of life, I thought this, I thought, what would I want my obituary to say? Or what might I want written on my tombstone? You know, that one paragraph in the newspaper or a, a few words on a grave that summed up my life. Now, this is not a morbid, introspective exercise. I suggest to you it is wise to consider the end of the matter and then live your life in light of that. You see, time is not, as the world will tell you, cyclical. You know, the, the circle of life and all that. It is linear from eternity to eternity. And we awake to a new day, not ultimately because the sun rises or we deserve it, but because of God's loving mercy. We sang, great is thy faithfulness, right? Lamentations tells us the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. And so the psalmist in Psalm 90 tells us, teach me to number my days that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Consider the end of the matter and live life in light of that. That is wise. That is wise. Now James, the brother of Jesus, is a, a wise pastor. He's a doctor of souls. Uh, and he is eager to teach through this letter as I've preached several messages from this letter over the last year or so, he's eager to teach what Christian maturity looks like, what wise Christian living looks like, because maturity and wisdom go hand in hand. And this letter would have been distributed amongst house churches full of scattered Jewish Christians. So it's a letter that is full of instruction on practical Christianity. Practical Christianity, living it out. And in the letter, James exposes sin in the church because he's very concerned with exposing the folly of hypocrisy in the church. And he's therefore very keen to promote the wisdom of Christian maturity, that your walk will match your talk. And as you know, he is taught about how this maturity is seen in the way we respond to trials. We see that in chapter 1. And, and by how we're obedient to the Word of God, faith and works going hand in hand. About how the way we speak, when he talks in chapter 3 of the taming of the tongue. And then in chapter 4, and I preached this message last time, about conflict in our lives and how we're to deal with that. And now he wants to speak about learning to submit to God's will in all of life. That there's a right and a wrong way to address the future and, and the way you make your plans. And he does it by addressing a particular group of people in the church, you see. He addresses merchants or, or, or Christian businessmen who indicate a style of life that doesn't consider the end of the matter and doesn't submit to God's will. So he's speaking to a specific group here, but it's an illustration for all of the church, okay? In the way that we are to live life in submission to God's will. And so there are lessons for us all if we have ears to hear. And so he begins in the text before us today in verse 13. 
he begins, come now, come now, or listen up. This is sharp language. The, the phrase is used only here in this text, and at the beginning of chapter 5, you see it repeated at, in chapter 5, verse 1, the only two places in the whole of the New Testament. And it, it's meant to convey an awakening call, an awakening call to those who are daydreaming or deluded. And it contains a note of urgency because the matter is very serious. So listen to me this morning. Don't drift through this sermon. Pay attention. Come now because it may save your life. If you will live all of life in submission to God's will, then you need to heed the four warnings that James gives. It's the way I've just kind of broken this sermon up, and you should have an outline in your bulletin. Four warnings that James gives. Firstly, he warns against the folly of presumption and self-sufficiency. The folly of presumption and self-sufficiency. Look at what he says. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. See, look how these people speak about their plans. With great confidence, we will go. But also with great precision. When will they go? Today or tomorrow. Where will they go? That town there. For how long will they go? A year? To do what? Business or trade? For what purpose? Profit, monetary gain. Very confident, very precise. Now, it's important to say at this point that it's not wrong to make plans, and it's not wrong to make money. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 32, he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. The book of Proverbs says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So the ability to look into the future, use your imagination and to think what might come and then to make plans accordingly and carry them out is actually part of being an image bearer of a planning God. God plans salvation. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, he plans it. And work is good. God made it so from creation, when Adam is called to work and keep the garden, even reflecting the God who works in creation. Jesus and the Apostle Paul speak about providing financially for family. So work for profit in order to provide is a good thing. Laziness is a, a sin. Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise, because she works to provide. Planning for the future and working to make money, to live, is not wrong in and of itself. But the problem with these guys is that they did all their planning without reference to and reliance upon God's will. Notice how James writes. He says in verse 13, this is what you say. But then verse 15, but this is what you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and we'll come back to that. They were saying one thing, but they should have been saying another, 
which includes the will of God. They left nothing out of all their confident, precise planning except the most important thing, God. They're presumptuous and self-sufficient. And that's how unbelievers speak, isn't it? And you know where you hear it a lot? On public transport. You know, everyone's got a phone now, haven't they? Everyone speaks so loudly, don't they? On the phone, rah, da, rah, da, rah. And on the sea train, maybe. Certainly on the, the London Underground in, in, in the UK. Or in an airport. You know, people go, oh, now they've, people have got these earbuds. When you see them speaking, it, I think they're, they're crazy. And oh, you see they've got the little earbuds in. Now they haven't even got the wires coming down. And people are talking. And they're broadcasting their whole life, aren't they? And especially when you hear, if you're at airports and, uh, or you're going into the, the city, and you might hear people talking about business. You hear what they're going to do, what deals they're going to make, where they're going to go, and what the purpose is. All very confident, all very precise. But we've got to notice that this text here is actually aimed at Christians who have this attitude. Presumptuous. Self-sufficient speech. No mention of God. And that's the problem. And it's deadly. And this wrong way of living is rooted in a couple of things. It's rooted in a wrong view of life. And it's rooted in a wrong view of God. And that's why the warning about the foolish uh, presumption and self-sufficiency is followed very closely by a warning about the uncertainty of life. Because they've got a wrong view of life. And so that's the... The next thing, he says, you're planning with precision and confidence for the next year, yet, verse 14, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. And I submit to you that, that wisdom is in part about realizing that you don't know a lot of things, that you're not that clever. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth, says that wise man Solomon in Proverbs 21. James is saying, it is foolish to speak this way about tomorrow with such certainty. Friends, do you realize how complex life is? Life is not simple. It is a matrix of complex forces and events and people and circumstances all beyond your control, all beyond my control. It's so variable, it's unpredictable, it's uncontrollable. It is beyond any man or woman to either ascertain the future or design and control the future. If you go online, you can find all sorts of mathematical probability questions and scenarios. Someone's nodding in the front here. Quite interesting. Here's one that I heard a preacher actually use. Suppose you take 10 pennies and mark them from 1 to 10. Just 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Mark them on the 10 pennies. Then put them in your pocket and shake your pocket. Mix them up. Now try to draw them out in sequence from one through ten, the way that you put them in, putting each coin back in your pocket after each draw. You draw out one and put it back, draw out two, put it back, draw out three. Your chances of drawing out number one is one in ten. 
Your chance of drawing number one and two in succession is one in a hundred. Your chance of drawing number one, two, and three in succession is one in a thousand. Your chance of drawing one, two, three, and four in succession is one in ten thousand, and so on, until your chance of drawing number one through ten in succession would reach the unbelievable figure of one chance in ten billion. Now, if you can't deal with ten pennies in your pocket, how are you going to control everything in your environment? You can't. Infinite complexities out there, far beyond our ability and control. And yet, there are people in the world and in the church who imagine foolishly that they are in charge. That they are in charge. Who in here has been utterly caught off guard by circumstances they could never have predicted? Anyone? <laughs> the hands should be going up all over. Yeah, there's a few hands going up. You never thought it would happen to you. And all your planning for a perfect life, just the way you imagined it, is now up in the air. Amanda and I have just been to Florida. We have a good friend down there, older man now, a very uh, talented surgeon, very wealthy. Um, had, uh, we would speak uh, years ago of, of what he had his master plan, master plan of life. How long he's going to work? what he was going to earn, what he was going to invest, what he would do after he retired, where he would travel, where he would go. About eight years ago, he was hit with a crippling back injury that stopped his career early. Now he can't even go out and swing a golf club. He's stuck. Up in the air, completely changed. Part of the uncertainty of life is also accepting the mystery of life. You know, it doesn't make sense to us, does it, when these things happen? when that baby dies in the womb, or that sickness or syndrome is diagnosed, or any Job-like tragedy hits, and we're left asking, why? Why? See, those who speak about their plans, like these folks James is talking about, they don't live well with the mystery of an uncertainty of life. Part of the uncertainty of living in a fallen world under God's control is that we cannot always know why, but God does, and God is good, and God is wise. You only need to look at the cross of Christ to see how good and wise He is. So lean not on your own understanding, as Proverbs 3 tells us. Don't lean on what you can figure out but on what God has revealed in His Word. That's what you should lean upon. And friends, hold all of your plans with an open hand, because God may change them. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16. How many of you dreamed of being something and doing something when you were younger? Some kids here be dreaming of being something when you're a bit older aren't you? I can see a few of you in that third row back there, smiling, dreaming. And some of us older folks now, right? How many of those dreams you had as a kid or young man or one young woman have come true? You might get that degree. You might get that job or vocation you wanted. You might get that spouse. You might get that home in the country and grow old and happily with your family all around you. Or you might get some of it. Or you might get none of it. 
You might even be dead before the end of the year. And that's why having warned about the uncertainty of life, James now warns about the fragility and brevity of life. In fact, he says there in the text, in the second part of verse 14, what is your life? And then he answers, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist, fragile and brief. You know, like the mist that you might see over the forest in the, in the morning. And that same mist is gone in an hour. You know, uh, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, many say it's uh, Solomon himself. He begins the opening lines of Ecclesiastes. Do you remember how Ecclesiastes opens? Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Other translations of that word vanity use the word meaningless. But it is interesting to note that the Hebrew word hebel actually means breath. He's saying life is a mere breath. Life is like a mist. It is fragile and it is brief. Which means... If life is fragile and brief, unless Jesus returns first, then death is certain. Death is certain. Yet people go around acting as if they will live forever. My, my friend and pastor in Aberdeen, Scotland, David Gibson, writes this. We live as if the one thing that is certain will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain to come. Isn't that true? This, brothers and sisters, is a great delusion to which believers are not immune. We think we're invincible. And our culture does everything it can to anesthetize us to our mortality. Look younger. Live longer. Get plastic surgery. They say the pop star Madonna, she has so much plastic surgery to look younger now, she's actually seeking for a plastic surgeon that can make her look more natural. and so on. When I was a kid growing up in jolly old England, death was in your face a bit more. We had kid, kid songs, you may have had them as well. Ring a ring of roses, ring a ring of roses, it goes like this. Ring a ring of roses, a pocket full of posies, a tissue, a tissue, we all fall down. It's meant to be about the black plague, the black death. The ring of roses was the rash pocket full of posies was held to the nose to mask the stench of death. A tissue, a tissue, we all fall down, dead. What about this kid's song? It's raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring. He bumped his head and went to bed, he couldn't get up in the morning. Poor fellow, dead from concussion. We were brought up tough back then, you know, in England. But, but, Maybe it reflected, and maybe you know those songs yourself, but I mean, I was born in, in the 60s, right? So that's not long after World War II in Britain and the effects and the concept of the certainty of death. It was more common in thought. So just a word of wisdom to parents, teach your children age appropriately and biblically about the certainty of death. Because, you see, it is 
the life to come that is long, not this one. Ecclesiastes says, God put eternity into the heart of man. So, so there's something in us that says we're made to live forever. Adam and Eve were meant to live forever in that sense, but ever since the fall of man, when sin entered the world, the wages of sin are what? Death. Yet Christ conquered sin and death that we might have eternal life through faith in him. What foolishness then to make our plans and live as if this life were it. Everything you do must be motivated by eternal value. What does our Lord Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Eternal treasures, not down here, because everything here is passing away. Everything will be rolled up one day. Jesus also tells a parable in Luke 12. You can turn there, but you can, it's so self-explanatory, you can just listen. He tells a, a parable of, of this man, his la- land of a rich man, and it had, his land had produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do for I've got nowhere to, to store my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I'll store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you've prepared, where will they be? Or whose will they be? And you can imagine, can't you? In James's day, these people, they gathered around and they're talking. They're talking excitedly about what they're going to do how much they're going to earn and when they're going to go, when they're going to come back. They say, we're going to go to a city, make money, then return. And James says, you're a mist here for a little while, then you will vanish. You just got to note the juxtaposition of verse 13 and 14. Verse 13, city, make money, return. Verse 14, mist, little while, vanish. Your soul could be required of you this night. And of course, you see, they're talking, right? You say this, but you ought to say that. The mouth reveals the heart, you see. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, Jesus says. And of course, James has already talked in chapter 3 about the tongue. You can tell a lot about the spiritual condition of a person by the way they speak about the future, about what they're going to do. So let me ask you, what do you get most excited about when you speak? How how do you speak about the future? Your plans for making money or buying a house or getting married, having children, a job that you might get, a school you may attend? Are you most excited about speaking about those things? In fact, you might be doing very well. I'm sure there are. I know there are people in here are doing very well in life in a material sense. But you can be doing very well in life in a material sense and be absolutely lost in a spiritual sense. Remember Jesus' words, what will it profit a man if he gains the world, the whole world, but loses his soul? See, what concerns James is that here you have people, some of which may have lived in the time of Jesus' lifetime, 
and yet they're more excited about temporary material things than eternal kingdom things. Keener to advance their own kingdom than God's kingdom. What about the Apostle Paul's friend, Demas? He speaks about him, Demas, in 2 Timothy 4. You know, he drifted away from the faith. Why? Demas, he was in love with this present world. This present world. But you know, and, and mark this one carefully. Mark this one carefully. Sometimes the deadliest enemy to our hearts is not the wicked things in the world, it is the good gifts from God. Sometimes the deadliest things to our hearts are not the wicked things in the world, but the good things from God. When the appetite for God's gifts replaces an appetite for the, the giver of the gifts. It is a most subtle and deadly idolatry. It's very difficult to discern when it gets a grip. To ask yourselves, what is my life? And what am I living for? However young you are here, there's lots of young people. Young people, look at me. However young you are in life, life will pass quickly. You probably look at me and think, I'm never going to be that old. Right? You think you're going to have hair forever? Mm, not necessarily. Your hair can go. Life passes quickly. Of course, the older you get, the, the more you realize, and it goes quicker and quicker. My dad always used to say, up to the age of 40, it feels like life is so slow, and you can't wait to you're impatient for the next thing. It's like going up a hill and you get to 40 and now you're going down the other side of the hill and then everything's coming so quickly you want it to slow down. So, so true. So, so true. However young you are, life will pass by quickly. And even if you're young, the fragility of life should press upon you that you've got no assurance of tomorrow. So seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. The greatest thing in life must always be the first thing in life. The greatest thing in life must always be the first thing in life. Because as C.T. Studd said so well, this one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. What a good word that is for us all. This one life will, t will, t will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So James is warning us about the foolishness of the presumption and self-sufficiency that can infect us. Followed by a, a warning about the uncertainty of life, then a warning about the fragility and brevity of life. And then finally, he warns about God's will that should rule all of life. You see, these people were planning with a wrong view of life, uncertainty, its fragility and brevity, but ultimately a wrong view of God. And therefore, they had no dependence on God. No dependence on God. James says, you say this, verse 13. Now in verse 15, he says, instead, you ought to say this. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or do that. James presses upon them and presses upon us a dependency upon God for life itself and also everything we do and have in this life. If the Lord wills, we'll live 
and do this or do that. The Lord here is referring to God as Yahweh, the creator and sustainer, who controls everything. So instead of living life as if it's under our control, every decision we make in all of life must be in dependence upon God and in submission to his will. He not only controls how long we will live, but he enables the things we do and have while we live. Surely, it reminds you of those famous words of Jesus and the illustration of the vine in the gospel according to John in chapter 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Not some things. Nothing. Amazing thought, that. Kids, apart from me, Jesus says, you can do nothing. You'll say, you say oh, you'll do this and, and you'll do that, but you can't do anything without the Lord allowing you to live, without the Lord's power and grace as you live and breathe. He puts breath in your lungs right now, strength in your bones right now. He's prepared good works that you should walk in them. So we've got elections coming up and you should vote with good conscience and desire the best candidate, but that's not ultimate. God's will is ultimate. We say, don't we? Deo valenti. Deo valenti. You know what that means? God willing, or as the Lord wills. We say it um, at the end of a sentence or a text, you know, see you tomorrow, God willing, or DV, you know, Deo valenti. Kind of like a Christian motto. Paul says it in Acts 18, after taking Priscilla and Aquila to Ephesus and leaving them there, he says, I will return to you if the Lord wills. Deo Valenti, DV. He writes of his longing to come to Rome by God's will, he says. Romans 1 verse 10. Paul said Deo Valenti, but he didn't say it all the time. Instead, he lived as if it was written over his life that God's will rules. And his desire was to do God's will and that God's will would be done. Friends, when you say Lord willing or DV, be careful it's not just a reference to God's will without a preference for God's will. Not just a reference to God's will without a preference for God's will. It's possible to make reference to God's will out of pure habit and have no desire to live a life based on a preference for God's will. We can say, Lord willing, like unbelievers say, touch wood. Instead of having hearts that beat, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let your will be done in me, in my marriage, in my children, in my family. Let your will be done in my church and in my workplace and in my school, and in this country, is that how your heart beats? Is that how you live? Is that how you plan? I wonder. I wonder. Because letting God's will be done in our lives, preferring God's will in our lives, doing God's will, is so often a painful road. It means putting to death sin. 
and living sacrificially, preferring His will over mine. It means submitting to His will in His word, written word, but also in His providences that He sovereignly brings about in our lives. Embracing the difficult providences of God, the disciplines. Friends, I put to you that too often we live like the folks that James is addressing. And so we need to hear his warning words again in verse 16 and 17. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Too often we boast in our arrogance. Now there's boasting... And then there's boasting in your arrogance. Instead of God first with my time and talents, it's me first. Instead of God willing with my plans and hopes, it is I will make it happen. I will make it happen. And this kind of boasting, it can be loud or it can be quiet. It's not just the extroverts that do this. It's equally the introverts. Some of the quietest people Boast in their arrogance, and it is evil, James says. It is evil. And the tragedy of this kind of self-sufficiency is that it becomes so blind to its own folly that it actually goes against God's will purposefully. I know what is right, but I do my own thing anyway. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him is his sin. As a pastor, you hear a lot of people asking, what is the will of God for my life? I need guidance for this or for that. But you know what, friends? The greatest problem for most of us is not discerning the will of God for future decisions. It's doing the will of God that you already know today. Obey His will as He's revealed it for you today, and He will lead you into the future. It is the most dangerous thing in the world to ignore the word you know, to be a hearer and not a doer. Remember James says that earlier in this letter. And the more obedient you become to the word of God that he reveals to you in his word, the more clearly you will see the way ahead for the future and the plans you make will be in submission to him. Deo Valenti. Deo Valenti. Therefore James says, come now, listen up. In verse 13, has he got your attention this morning? He is a wise and loving pastor. And wise and loving pastors with their flock, as with wise and loving parents with their children, know there's a time to get urgent with them. So he says, listen to me. Listen to me. It's foolish to live life in presumption and self-sufficiency because life is uncertain. And life is fragile and brief. And God's will is primary. Therefore live in light of that with Deo Valenti, like a banner over your life. So friends, turn from living like these Christian businessmen in verse 13. And think rightly about life and think rightly about God. And then reorder your lives today to live for Him. And there's hope for you to do it. There's great hope for anyone in here today to do this. How? Because one man came to earth 
the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he came at the right time from the city of God to do business, business in the city of man. How long did he spend? He spent 33 years here on earth, approximately. And he did his father's will perfectly, obeying his every word. And in Gethsemane, he said to his father, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus went to the cross, for it, it was his father's will. And he drank down the cup of God's judgment, the cup of wrath due to sinners like us who do not do God's will. And he traded in the city of man. He traded his life to gain the life of his bride, the church. What a profit he made. And he rose from the grave after three days, and soon after he returned to the city of God from where he will return once more to judge the living and the dead. And for those who have trusted and those who will trust, maybe for the first time today, who will trust in this Jesus, you know what there is? There is forgiveness and there is restoration and there is new life. There is even eternal life. So now you can live for God in submission to the will of God. The question is, will you trust him? today? Will you submit your life to Him today? Has God done business with your soul today? How do you know if He has done business with your soul today? How might you be able to tell? I submit this to you. Take a few moments this afternoon and write down what you want written in your obituary or on your tombstone. Father in heaven, thank you for your word to us today that cuts deep, that penetrates, that divides, but is so good for our souls. Wean us from presumption and self-sufficiency. Give us a right view of life here on earth and a glorious and good view of you in your sovereign will over all things, that our hearts cry would be that your will is done in our lives, in our families, in this church, in this nation, across the world, that Christ will get the full rewards of his suffering when he said, not my will be done, but yours. In Jesus' name, amen.